This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Hello, everyone. Can I start by acknowledging that we're meeting on Gadigal land today? Pay respects to elders past and present. Uh, my name is Russell Briggs. I'm one of the directors here at the museum. Uh, and I want to especially welcome all of you. Professor Choate is an ancient historian, a papyrologist, and a copticist. His work focuses on discourses of authenticity, debates over cultural heritage, and the reception of the ancient world. Um, he's interested in the way that the ancient world is experienced today and our interactions with the nations and the people, uh, peoples whose past we study. So he's going to be talking about the afterlife of uh, the, the geographical area around Ramsey's uh, tomb, but he's going to go off in a lot of different directions uh, that aren't directly related to Ramsey's, but I think will hold your interest um, uh, very much. Um, it's a great topic to kick off our program with, um, and it's just pretty amazing that we're talking about uh, a geographical place and an era that's 14,000 kilometers away, three millennia, um, in the past, but the sarcophagus of Ramses is 50 meters away downstairs from here, which to me is just an amazing thing. Um, and it's something that you can't really duplicate in your life very often. And I hope most of you have had a chance to either go down to the exhibition or you're preparing yourself to go down uh, to see it um, uh, because it's pretty impressive. And uh, uh, after Professor Choate talks today, you'll have another view on, on how everything uh, uh, fits together. So. Um, Without any further ado, we'll talk again after, the, uh, after this is over, but let me bring up to the stage Professor Malcolm Cho. Thank you for that introduction, Russell, and thank you for all for coming along here on a rainy, foggy Sydney November morning um, to the museum. I also want to start by acknowledging today that we meet on the unceded land of the Gadigal clan of the Eora Nation, the people of the grass trees, the Gaddi who've tended this land and exercised custodian over it and the grass trees that once were much more extensive upon it, um, uh, the harbour which flowed up to it, the rivers which flowed off that harbour since the dream time and I pay my respects to the elders past and present of the Gadigal, um, uh, the elders of the nations throughout this country. Um, uh, and uh, extend that respect to First Nations people present today. Um, I want to say at the outset um, of my paper that in my capacity as head of Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University, in my official capacity if you like, what a privilege it is for the university to be acting as a program partner for the Gateway to Egypt series of lectures, panels and events, talks, um, uh, that accompany this exhibition at the Australian Museum. We are honoured as a department, as a university, to be able to share some of our expertise with visitors to the exhibition and the museum and very grateful to the Australian Museum for inviting us to be part of this spectacular event. I also want to acknowledge at the start Egypt and its people and welcome in particular any people of Egyptian descent um, in the audience today. I want to thank Dr. Mustafa Waziri, the Secretary General of the Supreme Council of Antiquities at the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities for bringing this exhibition here uh, as part of a huge team, of course, not just Dr. Waziri <laughs> alone, um, and Dr. Zahawas for curating it and the Nation of Egypt for allowing us the privilege of seeing these artefacts, most of which come from Egypt, 
um, seeing them here in Australia today. Um, I'm so glad to be speaking to you today, as you will have recognised by what I've been saying, and opening this lecture series. I'll admit at the outset that I'm not an Egyptologist. Q person just walking straight out again. What? I thought this would be an Egyptologist. Um, I say that because the title Egyptologist doesn't just mean someone that studies the history of Egypt. It's come to mean someone that studies the history um, of Egypt in the period of Ramses II, in the New Kingdom, and up to that time, the dynastic period of Egypt, the pharaonic period of Egypt, some people might call it. I wouldn't even say that I'm an archaeologist. Please stay, I'll explain why. I think that the label archaeologists should be those people that actually get out there and dig in the ground. I do participate in fieldwork in Egypt, but I'm more the sort of person that waits while the trained archaeologists, which inc mostly include local Egyptian archaeologists, uncover the things which I can then comment upon, often textual material, the worst sort of participant in fieldwork. Just bring me the text. I am, however, an historian of Egypt, primarily of Egypt in the Roman period, in the period we call late antiquity. So this is the period from when Augustus, as he was then Octavian, first emperor of Rome, his armies conquered Egypt, 30 BCE, beat Cleopatra and Mark Antony. This period of history, and many of you will know, who know nothing about Egypt, will know about Cleopatra, Antony and Octavian, um, and Julius Caesar, although he was, of course, 15 years dead by that stage, from that period of time down to the Arab conquest around 642 AD. So that's six millennia or so. This is where I focus on Roman and late antique Egypt, uh, a fascinating period of Egypt history. I'm really interested in religion in that period, Egyptian religion, Christianity, Judaism, things that combined all three, Greek, Greco, Roman religion, the imperial cult, all of those things, particularly Christianity and monasticism in that time, as will become clear. I'm also interested in the documentation for everyday life, particularly as it's preserved on papyrus manuscripts. And a lot of these are written in Greek and Coptic, which I'll tell you now for those of you that don't know, is the Egyptian language but written in the Greek alphabet. I'm an historian and commentator on other things too. Um, as Russell referred to, fakes, forgeries, authenticity, the antiquities trade, the ethics of what we're doing as historians in the 20, um, 21st century and how we understand our mission and how you understand our mission as historians and your own mission as historians because a historian is not just someone that works at a university museum. One of the things I'm big about is that History is something that we all construct together. It's not just people that work in universities. I'll get onto my paper soon, of course, but I think that's important. And I love occasions such as this, so that we can co-curate a bit of the history of Egypt and Australia together in the 21st century. I'm not here to talk about that today. Um, you'll be pleased to know. But I think you'll see here and there the traces of all my interests in this talk. So what are my, my overarching points? I'm talking about the afterlife of the tomb of Ramses II. I'm taking that as a starting point for an examination of a number of themes. I'm not talking about Ramses' own journey to the afterlife. There'll be people that come and talk in this lecture series about that, um, certainly. I'm not talking about the tomb as of Ramses as he left it or as a workman who made it left it. But I'm talking about the tomb of Ramses II and for reasons that will become very clear, 
other tombs, temples, and the environment in the vicinity of his tomb in the centuries and indeed the millennia after his death. And I want a couple of overarching themes to be clear, and I hope they are as I proceed. One is that I'm doing this to connect us back to the time of Ramses II. I'm going to step back through time to get back to there. So it's the journey that's important, not the goal here. So the goal is we, the goal and what you're going to do is go and see the exhibition if you haven't already and learn a huge amount about Ramses II. I'm going to be taking us there and connecting us in 21st century Australia back to that time. I also want to emphasize that everything I'm talking about is the history of Egypt. It's all part of this majestic civilization. It doesn't finish at the end of the New Kingdom. It doesn't stop being Egyptian history then. It renews, it transforms, it evolves from the New Kingdom and earlier down to the present day. So by tracing this, I will connect the streets of Sydney that we walk on today and the halls around the exhibition here in the Australian Museum with the Egypt that Ramses II walked in millennia ago. Russell alluded to the fact that we're starting our journey of discovery about Ramses II here about as far distant in time and space as we can. Obviously, we're a long way in time from the life and death of the great king. But we're about as far as we can get on the planet from Egypt without going to Antarctica. 14,000 kilometers, did we say? A place where no ancient Egyptian, no Egyptian in antiquity ever came, unless you're one of those that believe that the Gosford glyphs uh, up on the central coast record an actual um, uh, expedition, um, uh, not in the 1970s, but many hundreds of millennia before that. And I want to start our journey as far as we possibly can from Ramses in time, which is in the modern Valley of the Kings. So as proximate as we can get to where he was buried, and you can see, you can see his, to the entrance to his tomb in this picture, but as far as we can get in time, that is the present day. Now this picture was taken a couple of years ago, but it basically shows the Valley of the Kings um, as it was, a hive of, as it is, a hive of activity. Tourists, archaeologists in the foreground there, merchants, locals, international people, visitors to Egypt, visitors from other parts of Egypt. I show this partly to um, set the scene and partly to show you the tomb of Ramses II uh, there from the outside, partly because you can see the tomb itself in here, but also to underline the inseparability of ancient Egypt from this modern Egypt. And to make a point here that I think this exhibition here is one of the closest you can get to understanding Egypt without get being there, but I also think it's very difficult to understand Egypt without actually travelling there. And this is not just necessarily in terms of being in the tombs, but the spirit of place that is embodied there. I strongly recommend, uh, urge everyone who hasn't visited Egypt to, to visit it. So I want to start here, within sight of the tomb of Ramses II, but I want to pivot from the bustle of the modern Valley of the Kings, the Wadi al-Maluk, which is, just means Valley of the Kings in Arabic, to the time 
when it came to the attention of European travellers. So what I'm going to do in this paper is jump back stages in time. And the first jump I'm going to make is from the modern Valley of the Kings to the first time that European travellers in the early modern period came to there. So I'm going to skip over all the modern archaeological investigation of uh, the tombs, of the various tombs you can see here. Tutankhamun is just in the foreground, in its pride of place. You can see there's a lot of people outside the tomb of Tutankhamun here. There's no one outside the tomb of Ramses II, uh, but down here outside the tomb of Ramses IV, uh, there's a lot of people outside there. I'm going to skip over all the excavation, the clearing, the recording of these tombs um, in the 19th, 20th and 21st century. And indeed, I'm not going to say that much about the tomb of Ramses II itself. And this is for a couple of reasons. This is, we call this KV7, Kings Valley Tomb 7. It's been number seven for over 200 years now. You can see it. I've showed you in the background of this image. But I won't spend much time on it or show images of inside it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, what I want to talk about today is not the tomb in its original function. So I don't want to talk about the fascinating story of how it was constructed, how the various parts fit together, um, uh, the, um, uh, the ideology and religious reasons that it's set up as it is, its construction. I'm not an expert in New Kingdom tombs, or in the New Kingdom of Egypt at all, and I don't want to stray outside my expertise. Secondly, as many of you will probably know, the tomb's been under, under excavation recently by the curator of this exhibition, Dr. Zahawas, and it's for him to speak about what we now know of the tomb on the basis of his work. Um, it's certainly not me. Finally, and most importantly in a way, this tomb has been extremely badly damaged by floods and debris over the, over the centuries and millennia, which mean that a lot of its original decoration a lot of its original decoration can't be seen, and a lot of the rooms are either inaccessible or were until Dr. Zahi's recent work. So it doesn't illustrate the points that I want to make as well as it might. So I won't dwell on the recent archaeological investigation of the tomb, but instead jump back to what is often called their discovery, the discovery of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, which is sort of put some time uh, two or three hundred years ago. But of course, everyone that lived in Luxor and most people knew, lived, who lived in Egypt at that time knew exactly where they were and what they were. So there was no sense in which they were discovered by these first Egyptian travellers in the 16th and 17th and then 18th century. Those of you that have already seen the film Napoleon, those of you that know anything about Napoleon, those of you that have a passing familiarity with the history of the interaction of Europe with uh, Egypt will know that Napoleon, in his conquest of the world, as he imagined it, when he set off, travelled to Egypt, conquered it, held it for an extremely short time before the British conquered Napoleon. And there's a scene in the movie where he's firing at the pyramids and the Sphinx, the pox really shot the Sphinx's nose off, etc., etc. If you, if you <laughs> extract from that story what was going on, actually a huge, another army was accompanying Napoleon's army. And that army was, con um, was comprised of scholars, of drawers, of uh, people recording Egypt and its antiquities. So that happens 
in the very late 18th century, around 1799, the earliest years of the 19th century. And very swiftly after that, the British take possession of that from the French. From that time on, there were multiple expeditions, investigations, revelations, excavations. But I'm going to go before that, before the time when Napoleon and his army of scholars, led by Denon and others, arrived there and wrote the magisterial description de l'Egypte, which you can see in many volumes around Sydney today, or indeed on the internet if you wish. I want to go back to the first half of the 18th century. European travellers were first being taken round Egypt. And I want to look at people particularly such as Richard Pocock, who published his book in two volumes, A Description of the East and Some Other Countries, which is a strange way of um, describing his journey, as though the, the East were a country. Uh, in a sense, it was all one empire, the Ottoman Empire in that time. In the 1740s, so 1743, I think, the first volume of a description of the East is published, and I show you a picture here um, of uh, his journey to Thebes in volume two in Egypt. He'd actually been preceded from a few decades by a French missionary, Claude Sicard, who took extensive notes on uh, um, Egypt and Luxor and Thebes and went to the Valley of the Kings, but he didn't publish. So just like a modern academic, he sank without a trace uh, because he didn't publish his findings. Pocock was the first person to actually say, to actually to visit the valley, know it for what it was, connect it with the descriptions of the Valley of the Kings that Greek and Roman authors had left, draw a map of it, publish that plan of it, which you see here, and, um, uh, and, and really start people, um, start the investigation of it, in a sense. Okay, so we can trace the sort of modern investigation back. And as we look at it, we think, so. Tomb C here on Pocock's map is probably KV7, the tomb of Ramses, Ramses II. It's a little bit hard to match up, A, because this is a drawing made after Pocock got back to England on the basis of his recollections, B, because he's got two things. He's got this map, and then he's got a series of plans. And on that plan, there's uh, a tomb at C that he draws the plan of that can't possibly be the tomb of Ramses II, but that's in the right place. Um, uh, so uh, let's just say that that's, um, <laughs> that's KV7. The description which he gives, which runs for some quarter of a page, indicates that much more could be seen in the 18th century um, than now even if we're still a little bit unclear about what tomb he might have actually been in. Leaving aside what Pocock was doing there, which was touring, touring countries of which there was very little knowledge of back in, back in England and writing about them, the reason he went there at all was because there was local knowledge of the valley, of the tombs, that they were there. Locals knew all about these tombs. They called them in Pocock's day, and indeed still now, the Biban al-Maluk, the Barab al-Maluk, the Gate of the Kings, still called the Valley of the Gate of the Kings by many people, not just the Valley of the Kings in Arabic. What's interesting about tracing the local knowledge of the Valley of the Kings in, say, medieval Luxor in the centuries before Pocock visited there in the 1730s, is how 
the difficulty we have in picking that up. So there are some medieval Arabic manuscripts where people are talking about the various ways you can travel through Egypt. And some of them you clearly pass by on the road out to the oases, past the Valley of the Kings. The other thing we look for is evidence of people being there in writings on the walls. I'll get onto this a lot. And there were very few Arabic graffiti from the Valley of the Kings, which means that everyone knew about it, but not many people used it in the medieval period. Not many people went and stayed there, made it their home, or explored it systematically. So to think about the history of the investigation of the Valley of the Kings, we have to jump back again over this medieval period. So we want to acknowledge that it was only discovered and by that we mean Europeans being taken to somewhere that had been to, everyone knew exactly where it was. So there was no discovery involved. It was the only discovery was on the part of the people that had never been there before. I want to jump from that back to, back to late antiquity that I've, been, that I've been talking about. So as I said, late antiquity is a bit of a malleable time. Traditionally, it starts with the accession of the emperor Diocletian in 284 CE or AD if you prefer. And this is the start of the date of the Coptic Church. The era of the martyrs that they keep starts in 284, the accession of Diocletian. Um, traditionally, that's when late antiquity starts. When does it end? Well, it could go right up to the fall of Byzantium uh, in the 15th century. In Egypt, it traditionally goes from 284 to two, um, 642, from the accession of Diocletian to the Arab conquest. But of course, life goes on. And a far better way of thinking about Egypt in that period is Egypt in the first millennium. Say from the Roman period, the first century AD, right up to the time of the Abbasids or the Fatimid Caliphs down in the, the 9th and 10th century. That's the time that I would look at. I'm thinking about this 4th to the 8th century CE when I'm talking here today. And I'm going to be using as evidence for this mostly graffiti and Depinti that are on the tombs. Now, I'm going to be showing a lot of images now of tombs in the Valley of the Kings that are better preserved than the tombs of Ramses II. So I'm going to be showing you a lot of images of people in the 20th dynasty, not the 19th, um, and that is Ramses IV, um, Ramses V and VI, these, these later kings whose tombs, for whatever reason, were better preserved, basically because they weren't flooded as often, uh, than the tomb of Ramses, the, um, Ramses II. And I'm going to be relying on these graffiti and depinti. So a graffito is something, technically, something you scratch in the wall, you scratch on the plaster, and a depinto is something you paint on there with ink. We can call them all graffiti if you like, because you'll get really tired of me saying graffiti and depinti. You'd be saying to the person, what, what, depinti again? Let's just call them all writings on the wall Graffiti that were made at a later time. And it's these that allow us to see the history of these sites used, trace how people used these sites in the centuries and millennia since these tombs were used as tombs. And they're sort of the social media of the ancient world. How do you record that you were somewhere? You write, I was here. Um, and so here you can see some of the depinti, really, let's say graffiti, that were made in late antiquity by inhabitants of these tombs. The sort of everyday communication between them and between them and those people to whom they were praying. If you total up all the thousands of graffiti from uh, the Roman period and late antique Egypt that are in the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, 
most of them turn out to be in KV2 and KV9, um, and these are the tombs of Ramses IV and Ramses V and VI. If you remember back to that picture of the Valley of the Kings that I showed you, you can see where the tomb of Ramses II was in the middle. Those other tombs are just sort of either side of it as you come into the valley and then just when you go round past to the right of the tomb of Ramses II. So they're all in a loop there and I bet that the tomb of Ramses II originally had a lot of this sort of material but it's just been lost over the millennia. It's certainly the biggest and for the things that we're talking about, people living in the tombs, people making their homes in there at various times, it would have served a lot better. What I want to say about this period of late antiquity is I want to emphasise the Christian monastic culture that was in Western Thebes, in the necropolis at that time. West Thebes was absolutely full of monasteries from the 4th to 8th centuries, one of the major centres of monasticism in Egypt. You may or may not know that Christian monasticism really started in Egypt in the late 3rd and early 4th century, and Thebes became one of its main centres. Even as you travel round Thebes today, round the district of Luxor, the fact that everything is called Deir, the Deir medina the Deir al-Bahi, the Deir al-Bahit, um, that tells you, and because Deir means monastery in Arabic, that tells you how ingrained monasticism is in that region. And I leave aside the issue that when lots of people see medieval remains, they just call it a monastery, whether it is or not. The image of Thebes as a centre of monasticism was kept alive in art and in, um, in uh, literature that was handed down, so much so that some of the original tourists from Europe to Egypt in the 17th century thought of Thebes as a great centre of monasticism, not as a centre of pharaonic civilization. In the Valley of the Kings, the tomb of Ramses IV has the best preserved Christian graffiti. I'm showing some of them some of them here, and I'm showing one up close here. Um, maybe it was a monastery in later times, maybe it was a way station for pilgrims. The way it actually formed this tomb, a sort of hotel for visitors and archaeologists in the 19th century, which is one thing I can assure you when you go to Egypt, don't ask to stay in one of the tombs or temples, like people did in the Temple of Luxor, in the tombs at Saqqara, and indeed in the tombs of the Valley of the King in the 19th century. There are much better places you can stay um, than a tomb. This um, inscription or graffiti is actually really interesting because what the writer is doing here is down the bottom is his name, uh, Abraham. You can see just down the bottom here, Abraham, the sinner Abraham, up here, are all the names of famous monks right back to Antony the Great, the sort of founder of monasticism in Egypt. And the, that monk, Abraham, is connecting himself back in the tradition to those early monks, just as we're connecting ourselves back um, to ancient Egypt here. Elsewhere in Thebes, the plentiful remains um, of this phase are everywhere visible. Now, as you go through the exhibition, you'll see, as just as you come to the coffin of Ramses II, you'll see a picture of this part of Thebes, and what it is is to illustrate the, um, the cache, the cachette where the, the uh, mummy of Ramses II was found, up on the mountain, which is behind this structure down here, 
Why am I showing you this structure? Because that's the Deir el-Bakri, that's the northern monastery, that's the centre of monasticism in the whole of Upper Egypt. And so I don't recognise that at all. Well, maybe some of you might recognise it if we show the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, which is underneath it, rather than the monastery which is on top of it. I study that phase, or the, the, the monastic phase over the top, um, <coughs> and, uh, but I'd like to see it all one continuity of, um, of uh, Egyptian history. And I want to show here, something was happening at the same time on the mountain was on the Drao Bolnaga, which is just the mountain just a bit to the north of the Derobachi. There's another monastic settlement, and Macquarie is excavating and investigating a monastic settlement there. In um, tomb 233, which is where that oven is on the top left, and in the adjoining tomb 149, which is on the top right there, where we have graffiti on the walls and papyri. This is a bit of the book of Genesis in Coptic that was found there. And these, this settlement was from the... Um, originally, the tomb was from the time of Ramses II himself, when Saroy was... What was Saroy? Saroy was royal scribe of the offering table of the Lord of the Two Lands, Amun Mose, next door, uh, he lived in the time of Ramses IV. In late antiquity, it was a thriving monastic settlement, and it tells us so much about the way that this, this land was used and reused. If we move back in time, and this is the last time setting that I'll deal with here, uh, we come to the Greco-Roman period. So the Greco-Roman period really started in... The, after the conquest of Alexander the Great... Alexander conquered Egypt as part of his conquests. That got left to his general, Ptolemy, son of Lagos, after his death. So from 322 BCE on, the Ptolemies rule Egypt and Cleopatra is the last of the Ptolemies and the Romans take over. So when we talk about Greco-Roman Egypt, we talk about this millennium from, say, 332 up to 642, that sort of millennium. And again, we deal with tourists a lot of them visiting what they called the syringes, the syringes, which is a Greek word for pipe, which can be any sort of pipe, i.e. A, uh, a tomb shaft, a subterranean passage, a burial vault. As well, we also know about these literary reports. So Strabo, who visited the area. Diodorus Siculus, who read some, a book written by someone who had read a book by someone who had visited the area. Other people, such as geographical writers, such as Pausanias, they left these descriptions which was what people had, what the Europeans were reading when they came to be tourists 1,500 years later. There were many famous tourists to the valley in the early Roman period. The Emperor Hadrian himself came to look at what he called the Colossi of Memnon, which are the massive statues of Amenhotep III out on the plain of Egypt in the early 2nd century. In the, um, in the tombs themselves... There were provincial governors, religious leaders, government officials, military leaders, poets, grammarians, historians, rhetors, sophists, philosophers, doctors, artisans, and enslaved people, and more. And what I think is really interesting about the, um, what the graffiti that they left on the wall, which again is mostly in the tomb of Ramses IV and the tomb of Ramses V and VI, there is some in the entranceway to the tomb of Ramses II, and then it just becomes too destroyed to look at it properly, and the plaster is gone from the walls in which it would have been um, scratched or written, is what they say they're doing. So I'll just give you about five graffiti from each tomb here. The word that they use most is... Thalmadzo, Thalmadzain in Greek, Ethalmaza, to be amazed. 
They say, I came here and I was amazed. Overwhelmingly, they use that verb. They also have the verb historesen, which I'm sure you'll, know, you'll get the English cognate if I say the Greek word historia. <clears throat> and that's a really interesting word in that context. It doesn't mean that they're all historians, although one of them, Elpidos, son of Elpidos, uh, scholastic historian, scholasticos and isistorikos from Alexandria, he called himself a historian. Most of these people were lots of things, but this verb that they used, historesin, they say in the Greek, or historesa, historain, it really means to be a ma to investigate, to record these sorts of visit. This is the way we might translate it. Not he came and did the history of this. It's these graffiti, hundreds and hundreds of them, that show these people passing through the tombs in the Greco-Roman period. If we look back in the time of Ramses II, we can find more graffiti. You'll see a, um, a beautiful reconstruction of this and some virtual reality concerning this um, in the exhibition. I want to concentrate on what's right down on one of the, the right leg of the left-hand statue of Ramses there, which is the earliest Greek graffiti in Egypt. We're back in the year 592, 593 here now. I, want, I use this to point out how these pharaonic monuments continue to carry the traces of later history of Egypt. And I want to, I want to end with something that shows that how the monuments of Egypt in the time of Ramses II carry forward for us the later history of Egypt at Abu Simbel, but also at the Temple of Luxor. Where you can see in that temple now every phase of the Egyptian civilization from the time of Ramses II down to now. So obviously you walk the forecourts of the temple itself, as it was in the time of Ramses. And when you come into it, you can see above the, the floor of the temple, there's a Roman period building, probably from the time this was a military fort, time of late antiquity. On top of that, there's a mosque that's still being used today. So you have the whole of Egypt's history there, and you can still see that. You can see from this photo of the mid-19th century that there was once a village on the site. There was a house, there was what was called the Maison Francaise, down the other end, over the top of the modern sanctuary of the temple. There was a beautiful house right on top of the temple, which was removed in the 19th century, once some bright spark realised that you didn't want to put a modern house right on the top of uh, one of the most important temples in Upper Egypt. I love the fact that Ramses is still here in this 19th century photo. There's his massive statue buried up to, uh, above his stomach, um, uh, still watching over the village that was on the site of his temple. Where? Where is he? Sorry. He is here. There is his statue. And he is mostly buried, and his face is mostly gone. But he is still there, so sorry about that. On the, on the, he's on the other side of this wall um, that you can see here. We can follow this history back in the stones of the buildings, just as we followed our visitors to and inhabitants of uh, these tombs in the Valley of the Kings and the West Theban Necropolis on their journeys of discovery. And in the Luxor Temple, we can see the temple, the Roman period building, the mosque, the village, the houses, the French house, and over all this, Ramses watched through the millennia, never going away, at times retreating from view, 
as he's almost retreated from view here, only to be revealed again as he is in the museum at this moment. I think that's enough from me. Thank you. Oh, that was great. Thank you, Professor Choate. Um, we'll uh, have a little conversation here and then open it up to, uh, to questions. I, we were talking earlier before, uh, before all of you came into the room about um, the, the way Egypt is perceived in the modern world now and the lack of continuity, continuity that exists um, between the perceptions of ancient Egypt and, and how, it's, how it's perceived now versus what you've just heard about um, from Professor Cho. And I, I was thinking, as the father of a nine-year-old boy, that when you look at the books that have been produced for young people about, about Egypt, everything is quite bitsy. It's sort of everything is focused on this pharaoh and the time of that pharaoh, and then this pharaoh, and then this pharaoh. It's sort of like looking at the modern world and only looking at the billionaires and what they were doing and not looking at anything else that has to do with actual life. And it seems like we, in the, in the perception, especially for young people that are learning about Egypt, that you, you move from the ancient world to perhaps the discovery, the decoding of, of hieroglyphs and what that meant, and then, and then into this modern perception of what, uh, what ancient life in Egypt was like. And what you're talking about is that there's, there's a blind spot across all those millennia of what was happening um, both in Egypt and, and with the perceptions of Egypt all along the way. And it's interesting to me, and I'd love to have you reflect a little bit more about how modern people can begin to see that continuity, that through line, um, and, and how it can um, change and expand our view of what Egypt is actually like as a country then and a country now. Um, yeah, that's a fascinating question. I'm glad that, that, um, um, that this comes up because I think there is, there has been a tendency to have an ancient Egypt and then you sort of jump down to its rediscovery. We're rediscovering ancient Egypt and we're sp skipping over a lot of real, so we're skipping over a couple of things here. One is uh, more than a thousand years of Egyptian history where fascinating things, where fascinating things go on um, in and where a lot of, for instance, the literature that we now read was copied in this later period, a literature that was in hieroglyphs or a hieratic or forms of the Egyptian script, um, as well as these magisterial contributions to civilization, such as monasticism, such as um, medieval architecture, science, um, in um, Abbasid, Fatimid, Ayyubid, Cairo, um, the universities there, the, all this, like the copying enterprise, all these sort of things that were happening, the things that were happening in Egypt at that time, but also um, it takes out of the story a lot of the rediscovery and the preservation of ancient Egypt that takes place in this time. Um, uh, so for the thousand years or so before uh, Champollion discovered hieroglyphs, there were people working in Egypt and other countries in the Near East writing in Arabic who were codifying what was known about hieroglyphs, making dictionaries to the Coptic language, which was what allowed the decipherment of hieroglyphs. Um, people working in Egypt that played vital roles in this, that, that is also a bit occluded if you sort of skip over that and go from the 19th century back to, say, the writings of Strabo. If you take these Roman period geographers and say, OK, now where's the Valley of the Kings? 
um, and go from there, or sort of construct a narrative that goes from Greek writers in late antiquity, Horopollon, who wrote his own handbook on hieroglyphs back in the 4th and 5th century, a narrative that goes from there to 16th and 17th century people such as Athanasius Kircher, who were trying to decipher hieroglyphs, onto Champollion, you miss a whole other part of the story that I think takes Egypt out of that story in a way that means that that's a contributor to why we don't see that phase of Egyptian history as well. And it's probably worth noting, and it was probably quite obvious to all of you, the understandable care you take in the use of the word discovery. Um, and, you know, it's a bit ironic that 100 meters from here we have a statue of James Cook that says that he discovered Australia. It's engraved in, in the stone there. And so someday someone's going to find that stone and analyze it from the far future looking back. And that word discovery is so freighted with meaning um, or lack of meaning. And the way that you, Professor, contextualize the idea of discovery, and, and that's something that would have happened again and again over the millennia. Yeah, again and again. So like the, the, the history of the Valley of the Kings since the time when it was in use as a burial ground back in the New Kingdom is a history of locals showing visitors it. Um, and so this happened certainly in, uh, in the late period already. That is the time before the Greco-Roman period, but after the New Kingdom. Certainly in the Ptolemaic period, in the time of Ptolemy and his successes down to Cleopatra, in the Roman period, we can see all their graffiti. Then on to, to the monks who lived there, bringing pilgrims through there, and on to the people, the, guide, the local guides that take people there today. Um, and one of the things that um, I think this exhibition really neatly points out, because it has so much Egyptian agency in this exhibition, it points out the importance of that local knowledge and local, uh, local participation in, that, uh, in the, the, the maintenance of the memory, if you like. Things don't need to be discovered that are always known. Thank you very much again for coming. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.